Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You got any extra water, Matt? If you have one, I'll take one. All right. Fantastic. Well, what a day. This is different, huh? We're glad you guys are here. Um, okay, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. Sanitized water bottle, the whole bit. Okay, so um, we're glad you are here, and uh, I also want to welcome those who are listening by podcast delay, and we hope both of you enjoy this sermon very much, all right? Uh, so uh, what we're doing this morning, even with all of the unusual uh, aspects of this weekend and really this time uh, for us, we are going to carry forward with our study series through the season of Lent. Everybody okay with that? Yeah. All right. So we set out a roadmap um, a few weeks ago when we began, actually, I think the Sunday before Lent so that the math worked out. And we said our agenda is uh, that through the season of Lent, Sunday by Sunday, we're going to study um, one day at a time of Jesus' experience during the week that we call Holy Week. And so we began uh, with Palm Sunday with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem uh, with really his prophetic demonstration of the peaceable kingdom of God, the nonviolent peaceable kingdom of God over against uh, the, um, the uh, domineering, coercive, violent um, empire of Rome and of empires around the world throughout history. And then on Monday, Jesus' demonstration, the temple protesting there, a prophetic demonstration against the injustice of the religious aristocracy of the time in and around Jerusalem, and then last week we looked at Tuesday, and so this week we have gotten ourselves to the day of Wednesday. We're tracking close with the Gospel of Mark because he, among all the Gospel writers, seems to pay close attention to time, uh, the beginning of each day, and so on. And so we're tracking with the Gospel of Mark, and all of that gets us to Wednesday, uh, Mark chapter 14, and so I'm going to read it. Here we go if everybody's ready. This will be on the screen, or you can turn on your Bible and find Mark 14 in the translation of your choice. Here we go. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at a table... A woman came with an alabaster jar, uh, a very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted this way? For this, is, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. For truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. There you have it, Mark 14, Wednesday of Holy Week. A couple of observations to start. We have here another example 
of what we talked about a few weeks ago of Mark's kind of, I guess, not exclusive to Mark, but he does it more often than the other gospel writers. So we'll call it Mark's trademark uh, of telling a story within a story. We called it a few weeks ago, we called it a bookend type storytelling technique or maybe a sandwich story technique. And Mark does this often. Here we have another example. The idea is um, Mark will begin to tell a story, tell the beginning part of a story, and then he'll tell another story, beginning, middle, and end, and then he'll return to the opening story and complete uh, that story. And uh, a few weeks ago when we looked at an example of this, um, we saw it was the incident with the, the story of the fig tree and Jesus' uh, symbolic destruction of the fig tree, uh, and, and that story was bookended around the story of Jesus' protest in the temple and his symbolic, symbolic destruction of the temple. And so, uh, as always, these sandwich stories are meant to interpret one another in the case of the fig tree in the temple, what you see is two stories that reverberate with one another in exactly the same direction. They're both stories of destruction or symbolic destruction. Here we have another story within a story, and these stories uh, as well are intended to interpret one another, and yet they work in the opposite way from the fig tree in the temple. These two stories reverberate with one another, but they actually reverberate and go off in completely different directions, right? If you think about what we, what we just heard in Mark chapter 14, you have this, this scene with the religious leaders uh, realizing that they, they want to arrest Jesus and, and kill him, and they realize they need to do it by stealth. They need to do it under a cloak of disguise. They need to, they need to arrest Jesus, but they can't do it for, for reasons of the crowd. They can't do it out in the open, so they want to do it by stealth. So what they need, let's just say it this way, they need a traitor of some sort. Mark leaves that story off there, and then he tells us this story, this beautiful act of devotion and worship and love toward Jesus where this unnamed woman uh, takes this jar of ointment and, as Jesus describes it, um, anoints him for burial, uh, beginning, middle, and end of that story. And then we return to uh, the theme of a traitor, and sure enough, the chief priests and the, and the scribes get exactly what they need in Judas' appearance as a traitor, right? So we have these two stories that, again, interpret one another, reverberate off of one another, but in this case, they go in very opposite, uh, very different, even opposite directions. And so let's look a little closer at each of these scenes. First of all, it is noteworthy, I think, that Mark points out that the, the religious leaders, they want to they wanna arrest Jesus, but they say they need to do it by stealth. And again, we've talked about this in several instances throughout our study over the last few weeks. But, you know, so again, why do they need to, to rest Jesus by stealth? And the simple answer is, it's because the crowds are in support of Jesus. Mark has told us this several times, that the crowds are in support of Jesus. And again, I just want to pause and, and point this out. Um, in the traditional portrayals of the crucifixion of Christ, certainly when we get to Good Friday, um, the traditional portrayal tends to suggest that all of, the Jewish, all of the Jewish people turned against Jesus and were ultimately, in the end, in favor of crucifying Christ, right? You see it portrayed in film. There's even certain church liturgies where when the story of Good Friday is read, the congregation is asked to play the part of the Jewish people and shout, crucify him, crucify him, right? You've seen, 
You've seen those scenes. Um, and again, I just want to point out that according to Mark, it's not quite that simple. According to Mark's telling of the story, um, it's simply not that simple, at least up till now on Wednesday, and I think we could even carry it uh, all the way forward, that Jesus, certainly as of Wednesday, Jesus is very, very popular with the people. The people love his message. Uh, when he comes in and he's thumbing his nose at Pilate and his oppressiveness using violence, the people love that. When Jesus comes in uh, and he's demonstrating against the injustice of the religious aristocracy, sitting in cozy with Rome and, you know, in their whole position, and Jesus uh, protests their injustice, the people love this. They are in support of Jesus. And maybe, as I suggested last week, and we'll get to this when we get to Good Friday, but maybe we ought to say that the people um, uh, loved Jesus' message. Maybe we could at least um, say that. Uh, and again, there may be some among the folks who changed their tune at some point or during some point uh, on Good Friday. But it's also, and this is the whole point of this, it's also fair to say, just like in every other culture, in any time, in any place, that you know, not everybody thinks with the same mind, right? Not everyone thinks with the, with the same mind, and that includes um, our culture even here today. But, but even in, in the story as told by the Gospels, we know that even among the religious aristocracy, there were some Jewish people who were in support of Jesus even beyond Good Friday, uh, through, or through the suffering of Good Friday and even into Jesus' death, where Joseph of Arimathea will uh, lend his, his tomb uh, to Jesus. So, so it's simply to say um, that there is, and certainly it's true uh, at least up until Wednesday, that there are many people who are in, who are in support of Jesus. And for that reason, if they're going to arrest Jesus and kill him, what they need is a traitor. Okay, so that's the opening frame. And then we move into this story of this unnamed woman. She takes this alabaster jar of what it says, very costly ointment. And in the protest of the people, when she breaks open that jar and pours it on Jesus' head, in the protest, uh, they say that this jar could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, historians tell us that during that time, a denarii was a, was a, was a measure of currency that was roughly the equivalent of one day's wor uh, working wage. And so you do, uh, you do the math. So we're talking about basically a year worth of wages, and you do the math in your context, a year worth of wages is what this alabaster jar of costly ointment is worth. She breaks it open and pours it over Jesus' head. It's a, it's a lavish, lavish act of devotion. And of course, you know, people protest and there's always some religious person in the crowd who wants to be super spiritual about everything. We could have sold this and given it to the poor, you know. So they protest the act. And, but Jesus, he stands in solidarity with this woman. He says, no, you're, you're going to have the poor with you all the time. You can serve them anytime you want. Then he says these words, which are a bit haunting here. He says, you're not going to always have me. And he, he makes it a little bit more explicit. What she's done is that she has anointed me for burial. And so here you have this beautiful act of worship now woven with this theme of death in this moment. And then Jesus caps off this scene 
by giving really unusual accolades, praise, tribute in characterizing this reverent act on the part of this unnamed woman. He says that wherever the good news is proclaimed around the whole world, which is stunning to think about, this act by this woman will be told again and again and again as a tribute to her. So I'm hoping, among other things in our time today, that we can do justice to the tribute uh, due for this woman. So it's a serious question, and I just want to ask it for now, and then hopefully we can work our way toward an answer. Why is this act so special? Why is this act, I've called it an re act of reverence, an act of worship, an act of devotion, however you want to characterize it for now. Why is it that this act is so special, that it receives this really, I, I think I want to say, a unique accolade from Jesus? Um, what is it about this act that is so special? Clearly, this is an act of deep devotion and love for Jesus, but, but what is it about this act that evokes, you know, such a strong statement by Jesus? And, and why does Mark give us this portrait of this unnamed woman sandwiched between these bookend stories about the need for a traitor and the arrival of a traitor in Judas? I think those are great, great questions, important questions. And I actually think that Mark gives us the answer to that question right in the story itself. But in order to see that, we got to keep going a little bit, I think. Okay, so then, as we just read, we move immediately from this uh, act of devotion on the part of this unnamed woman. We move immediately to the conclusion of the bookend story where Judas presents himself to the religious leaders uh, and offers to betray Jesus to them. Now, I just want to say, just kind of point out, I hope everybody's feeling a certain sense of whiplash in this storytelling on, on Mark's part, right? Like, we just, we just began with the religious leaders plotting, saying they want to arrest and kill Jesus, and then this beautiful scene of love and devotion toward Jesus, and then boom, we're slammed in the face again with this tragic act of betrayal against Jesus to the, by Judas, betraying to the religious leaders who want to kill Jesus. Now again, this is a shocking juxtaposition of attitude and posture toward Jesus, right? We begin with an attitude and posture toward Jesus of defiance and wanting to kill Jesus. And then we move into this beautiful scene with this unnamed woman and the attitude and posture toward Jesus is love and devotion and faithfulness and extravagant worship. And then boom, we're right back uh, to the dark side, let's say, with this attitude of hostility uh, uh, toward, toward Jesus. The contrast, again, the contrast between these two scenes is about as stark and divergent, definitive, as you can possibly get. So again, what is Mark doing in telling us this story, well, these stories, in this way? What is Mark doing and what makes this story in the middle so deeply meaningful? I want to spend the rest of our time trying to answer that question 
as best we can. And I think in order to get there, we actually have to back up a little bit. What we've been doing together here uh, week by week is looking at one day each Sunday of, of Holy Week. But I think in order to really get to the mustard for this moment that John is giving us on Wednesday, we actually have to back up and look at a broader sweep of John's storytelling. And don't worry, we're not going to you know, go by paragraph by paragraph uh, through several chapters. But, but Mark, um, he really tells a story deliberately of when it is that Jesus heads out to Jerusalem. Uh, with his followers, with his disciples, which would include what we call the 12, but then certainly a, a broader kind of concentric circles around the 12. Uh, and, and Mark really tells us definitively when that, as it's called traditionally, the journey to Jerusalem, when that journey begins with Jesus and his, uh, and his followers. And traditionally, and I think for good reason, for reasons we're going to see this morning, traditionally Christians have used not just Mark's telling of Holy Week, which is what we're focusing on this Lent season, but traditionally Christians have used Mark's entire telling of the journey to Jerusalem um, as a kind of a roadmap for Lent, for Lenten reflection. Use Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to see, we're going to see why. It's because throughout the it's several chapters uh, in, the, in the writing of Mark, but throughout the journey to Jerusalem with Jesus and his followers, there is a repeated pattern that happens again and again and again between Jesus and his, and his followers. And, and here's the pattern. And it happens three times. Jesus warns his followers of his soon coming suffering and death. And then the disciples, his followers, the 12, um, Push back, deny, ignore, refuse to hear what Jesus is saying. And then the next step in the pattern is that Jesus repeats what he's just said about his soon coming suffering and even his death. And then generally takes it a step further and says, and by the way, what this is all about is I'm inviting you to participate with me in this life poured out, life laying down, uh, kingdom bringing uh, new creation life, right? So, so you have this pattern. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. His disciples say, no, you're not. It can't happen. Or they say, well, we didn't hear that. We, we know that if you know, the people whom God favors are always going up and to the right. That's what we know. And so we can't even hear you talking about suffering and death, not if you're any kind of person who's uh, anointing, if you had the anointing of God on your life, that kind, of, that kind of deal. And then Jesus says, no, 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 you're not hearing me yet. What I'm saying is, not only am I going to suffer, but so are you. I'm inviting you to lay down your life in following me. This is the thing that happens over and over and over um, again. So in order to, and again, I'm, I'm telling you how, how it is, I think that we need to sneak back up to Mark's telling of the story on Wednesday, and I hope that'll all to come together. Okay, so, so we're gonna, let's look, though, here, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and I don't have these um, on my, in my notes, and so I'm just going to find it and read it, or at least read some of it. Mark chapter 8, verse, um, okay, verse 27. This is actually the, the beginning, really, at the beginning of their journey to Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And so he asked them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. 
And Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about it. Now, this actually raises an interesting kind of question. Um, and I'm going to tell you what I think is an interesting answer to an interesting question. Um, in many instances, we see this a lot where Jesus asks the disciples a question, they give an answer, and he tells them, you know, not to talk about it. And there's a couple of different ways you can take that. You can take that as one, you're right in your answer, but I don't want anybody else to know, and so keep it to yourself. But another way to interpret that exchange phenomenon, including right here, and I'm going to tell you where I lean on this one, another way to interpret that is, you've got it wrong, actually, so keep your mouth shut. You've got it wrong, so keep quiet. And here's the basis for that understanding. Uh, verse 30, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, saying, and traditional translations have the Son of Man. I love the Common English Bible. Um, it translates that title, the human one. The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts and be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. Now, notice how Peter answers. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ. Now, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. Jewish scripture and certainly Jewish thought and expectation has all kinds of ideas attached to the notion of that God would someday send a Messiah. Namely, when God sends a Messiah, he's going to be a military ruler who will rise up violently against our oppressors and overthrow them and return us to the glory days of King David and so on. And so when Jesus says, I'll tell you who you are, you're the Christ. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is thinking that Peter's thinking, yeah, and you're going to be just like David, a violent warrior like David. And so it's significant then that Jesus answers and says, here's the deal, the human one. Jesus doesn't call himself Messiah. He calls himself the human one. Contrary, contrary to the Davidic expectation, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. And he said this plainly. <laughs> he didn't mince words. But Peter, and here's the basis for the whole understanding that I've just given you. Peter took him aside and said, you just can't be. This cannot happen. You're the Messiah. Everybody knows that if God's hand is on you, your life goes up and to the right. That's what we know about anyone who was favored by God. You don't go down, you go up, right? That's the whole deal. So Peter scolded him, began to correct him, and Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and then he sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Jesus says, the anointed one is going down. And you're insisting that if there's an anointed one, they go only up. And to the right, and Jesus says, you're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking human thoughts. This is, this is profound. And then, this is significant here, um, continuing on verse 34. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to all of them. Now, he's talking, you know, you got the 12, a couple concentric, concentric circles of close followers, probably all of whom were called disciples. But Jesus calls, in addition to that group, Jesus calls all the crowd to him. And he says, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves 
take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. So here we have the first example of three instances of this pattern. The next one is in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Um, Same kind of pattern. Here we go. Let's find it. It says, from there, Jesus and his followers went through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it. This was because he was teaching his disciples. The human one will be delivered into human hands. They'll kill him. Three days after he's killed, he will rise up. But they didn't understand this kind of talk, and they were afraid to ask him. So this is the first iteration in the pattern. What about the, what about the next step with the disciples who, who don't get it? Mark goes on. They entered Capernaum, and when they had come into a house, he asked him, what, you, what were you arguing, arguing about during the journey? They didn't respond since on the way they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. <laughs> he sat down. He called the 12. Now we have a specific subset of the broader circle of followers. He called the 12 and said to him, whoever wants to be first must be the least of all and the servant of all. And then Jesus reached for a little child and placed him among the 12 and embraced him. So Jesus takes this child, puts him in the middle, and Jesus embraces this child. And he says, whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but rather the one who sent me. So here we have the second instance of this pattern where Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. Basically, the disciples don't hear or refuse to hear or ignore, and they still go on to argue about the, the up and to the right kind of theme. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen, little child, this, this movement, this kingdom, this transformational um, uh, yeast now moving throughout the world to heal the world, it's like, it's like a little child. Whoever comes to me is a little, a little child. Um, so here we have the... Second example, and then Mark 10, really quickly, Mark 10, verse 32 is the next example of this very same pattern. It begins with a stunning description here. Jesus and his disciples were on the road coming up to Jerusalem with Jesus in the lead. The disciples were amazed while the others following behind were afraid. Remember that in the Greek language in which this was originally written, the word road is the same Greek word as, as uh, is translated the way, the way, the road. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's the Greek word hadas. I am the hadas. And it's the same word for, for road as used here. So Jesus and his disciples were on the way. They were on the hadas together moving to Jerusalem. And Jesus was out front, and the others were following behind. And Mark gives us two descriptive words of those who were following behind Jesus. They were amazed, and they were afraid. They were on the way. Jesus was leading the way on the way. And those following Jesus were simultaneously amazed and afraid. I think that's a very vivid, important, probably an instructive description of what it's like for many people, most people, most of the time, that as we follow Jesus on the way, we are simultaneously amazed 
and maybe, if we're honest, at least every now and then, a little bit afraid. So, so it says again, taking the 12 aside again, he told them what was about to happen to him. Now, this is the most specific delineation of Jesus' soon coming suffering. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. This is actually a precise outline of how Mark later tells the story of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. He'll be handed over to the chief priests and the legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, to Rome. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise up. So there it is again. There's the first part of the pattern. Jesus predicts his soon coming suffering. Now, what about the response on the part of the disciples? Let's keep reading. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Right? Like they're literally rubbing the, the genie bottle, like in real time. We want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They said, Allow one of us to sit on your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory. <laughs> Just not even listening, are you? Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will, in fact, drink the cup that I drink and receive the baptism that I receive. And in fact, history tells us that they were martyred. But to sit in my right hand or my left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. And the story goes on from there. Well, in fact, let's just, let's just read it a little bit. Uh, now, when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said, You know that the ones who are considered rulers by the Gentiles um, show off or lord over their authority over them. And their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it'll be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. So there we have this pattern over and over again. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. His disciples either outright reject what he's saying or completely ignore it and continue on forward with their ideology that whoever it is that God favors moves up and only up. So they just don't hear. And then Jesus reiterates again and again and again. And in his rebuttal, in each instance, he invites them to participate in this life laid down kind of ethos. It's the kingdom normal, what Jesus is saying. And it happens again and again and again. And I want to pause here for just a moment and talk a little bit about the kingdom of God and the cross and this idea, this theme of participation. All of this, of course, is leading to Good Friday and the crucifixion of Christ. And, of course, the burning question for us and for generations of Christians, beginning on that very first Good Friday and certainly in every day and every age since then, the burning question is, 
What does this mean? What does the cross of Christ mean? What is its meaning? And I just want to say personally that for most all of my life, I had learned that the meaning of the crucifixion was about, in a word, it was about substitution. That on the cross, Jesus suffered in my place. He somehow suffered what I deserve to suffer both on, my, both on my behalf and instead of me so that I wouldn't have to suffer in that way. And so in that sense, Jesus' suffering, I had learned, can be thought of as substitution, that his suffering is a replacement for my suffering. Now, in light of what we're reading here, I just want to ask, what do you suppose Mark would say to that kind of thinking about the meaning of the cross? I suspect that if Mark were to hear us talk that way about the cross, he would respond by urging us to pay closer attention to the story that he's trying to tell. Mark is clearly not telling a story of substitution, everybody. Mark is telling a story of participation. Here's the pattern. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to lay down my life. To which his followers respond, oh, no, you're not Jesus because messiahs don't get killed. And besides, everybody knows that if God's hand is on a human life, they don't suffer. They don't go down. They go up and only up. You've got it all wrong, Jesus says. In reality... The path to divine healing, wholeness, transformation, salvation, the path to the kingdom of God is in fact not up. Instead, the path to healing and wholeness and salvation and transformation, the path to the kingdom of God is down. Through death and out the other side into new creation life. That's always the pattern. The pattern is just like the images through this story, like a child, like a slave, like a servant, down through death and out the other side into new life, a life that is only known through laying it down. And so then, in light of this story that Mark is telling, which is ultimately about the cross of Christ, what then is the meaning of? Of the cross. And again, it's not about substitution. This is not something that Jesus endured instead of me. Rather, it's an invitation extended to me, inviting me to participate with Christ in the life of new creation. The important German theologian and activist Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That is the story, everybody, that Mark is telling. And the reason I pause to point that out is because, and I'm just saying it for me personally, perhaps not for you, 
but for me personally. In the way that I first learned to think about the cross in terms of substitution in place of me, but also instead of me, that ideology completely obliterated my ability to hear and understand everything that Mark is trying to say. That the life of Christ, including his life poured out, his life laid down, his life given away, this is an invitation to participate in. When we say you have the mind of Christ, this is the mind of Christ. When we talk about what it means to have the faith of Christ, this is the faith of Christ. This is the consciousness of Christ. This is how he sees the world. This is how he sees what life is about. It's about pouring one's life out, broken and poured out. That's the life of the kingdom. And that's the story that Mark is telling. And so he's careful to remind us not only that this is the theme, this is what Jesus said over and over and over again, and he's also careful, careful to tell us that the disciples don't get it. They didn't get it then. They didn't get it the th second time. They didn't get it the third time. They just don't get it. And, of course, we know that's a theme throughout the gospel accounts of these stumbling, bumbling uh, disciples. But in particular, they are not hearing Jesus' message and, indeed, his invitation into this new kind of life that is down through death and out the other side to new creation life. They refuse to hear it. They are either unable to hear it or they simply refuse to hear it. And so now, in light of all that, let's then back up and see if we can take all of that context in and then move our way back into Mark's telling of the story of Wednesday and what do we see. And let's take his storytelling in reverse order, beginning again with Judas. What we see in light of this whole theme, what we see in, G in Judas, I want to suggest, is simply yet another example of a close follower of Jesus who doesn't get it, who simply refuses to get it. And I would point out to you that Mark gives us what we need in order to understand his telling of the story of Judas' betrayal. He gives us what we need in the way, in his telling of the story. Notice what he says when he identifies Judas. He says, Judas, what does he say? One of the 12. That Judas is one of the 12. In other words, Mark doesn't give us anything about what Judas' motive might have been in betraying Christ. And that, let me just say, from, a broad, from the broad standpoint of the conversation throughout kind of like Christian history, at least so far as I know, the big conversation is, why did Judas do it? Why did Judas do what he did? And some say, well, it's because of money. Uh, some say, well, maybe he could see the writing on the wall and knew that Jesus was going to be arrested. And so Judas betrayed Jesus in order to save his own skin, maybe. Um, there's a theory out there that Judas was sympathetic to the zealots, that violent subset of Jewish thinkers who believe that the way that God was going to liberate the Jewish people from Rome was through violent insurrection. And maybe Judas was sympathetic to that ideology. And so he turned over Jesus to the authorities in order to more or less kind of activate that ideology in Christ himself and kind of get something going in terms of a violent overthrow. I mean, there's been all kinds of theories out there, theory after theory after theory. And I think that conversation can be helpful because to the extent that it helps us search our own hearts with regard to our own potential for the betrayal 
of Christ. Because that is what I think Mark wants us to get, which is why Mark identifies Judas as one of the 12. This was one of Jesus' closest followers. And yet again, betraying the very heart, the very message of what Jesus has been trying to say over and over and over again. The way the kingdom comes is by laying down our lives. And here's Judas, saving his own skin, however you want to look at it. Judas betraying Christ into the hands of his betrayals. Judas, in that sense, let's just say it this way, Judas is the portrait of undiscipleship. He's simply refusing to follow. He's refusing to hear. He is the poster child for this big, giant discipleship fail. That's what's going on with Judas. And so again, back to this juxtaposition that Mark is giving us. Now we back up, reverse order, back into the story and move now to this portrait of this unnamed woman. Why then is this act on her part? Why is this act so emphatically praised by Jesus and given to us by Mark in that way? It's because she gets it. She hears it. Look what she did. She anointed his body for burial. He said, he said he was going to suffer. He said he was going to die. And this woman heard Jesus. She believed Jesus. She, uh, let's, just, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. And let's assume that she also had heard all the talk by, by aunts and uncles and so on and, and the messianic expectations and when a Messiah comes, what we know, if we know anything, what we know when a Messiah comes is going to be like David. He's going to rise up, build our army back up. Let's, say, let's assume she heard all of that. And let's assume that she too had messianic hopes in this rabbi from Galilee. And yet, when she heard him say he's going to die, he's going to suffer, she believed him. His closest followers, the 12, didn't hear him. They didn't get it. They refused. They closed their ears. We demand that if it's going to play out, it's going to play out the way we expect it to, the way we demand that it does if God is in it. And yet this woman who remains unnamed, she heard him say that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die. And she said, okay, if this is the way the kingdom comes, this is the way the kingdom comes. He's going to die. What can I do? She prepares his body for burial. As an act of, I'm going to say it this way, as an act of solidarity, alignment with Jesus. This is what he says is going to happen. I'm in with him, so I'm going to do the only thing I can do. Prepare his body for burial. I want to say that this woman is the first Christian because she took up the mentality of Christ over against, over against the mentality of everything she had been taught by our culture. And I'm saying all this, you realize what I'm saying all this is this still continues to be the mentality for our culture today, right? If God is in it, it's up and to the right, right? Whoever it is that God favors, it's the people who are going up. You can tell the people who God favors because they're going up and to the right. You can tell the people who God doesn't favor because they're going down, Right? And Jesus is speaking again and again and again. You're thinking human thoughts, not the thoughts of God. The way of God is the life laid down. She got it. 
Nobody else got it. She did. She's the first in, a, in that kind of technical sense. She's the first Christian thinking like Jesus, hearing him and saying, okay, this is the way the kingdom comes. It's not what I expected. It's not what I, it's maybe not the way she would have chosen for things to, bear, to lay out, but that's what the rabbi said, and I believe it. And so, she is this emphatically, extraordinarily, and again, I want to say, uniquely celebrated person, not even named. We don't know her name, but she's celebrated because of her act of devotion, loyalty, alignment with the heart and the teaching of Christ. And so, Lent. Here we are now in this season, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Lent as a season is kind of a microcosm of discipleship on the whole, let's just say, right? Like, like am I going to follow culture? Am I going to follow Christ? Am I going to follow my inherited, you know, kind of thinking about what what's meaningful in life, et cetera, or am I going to follow the way of Christ? And here we have this concentrated, this concentrated um, um, capsule of the mind of Christ. It's a life laid down, a life poured out. That's the hadas. That's the way. It's ultimately the way to life. The way to new creation. It is a through death into new creation, if I could make up a new hyphenated word. It's a through death and out the other side into new creation kind of life. That's how the kingdom comes. That's the life and transformation. And Jesus says it over and over and over again. May we hear him and take up the faith of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father,